is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From Variety, I'm Michael Schneider. Away, Glenn Miller. Actor John C. McGinley grew up during the heyday of the classic 1970s sitcom when producers like Norman Lear and James L. Brooks ruled prime time. There were plenty of well-written comedies that acted almost like stage plays in those days, but for a young McGinley, there was something extra fascinating about Lear's Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton series, All in the Family. I, I doubt I got all of it. It just... Uh, I was riveted by it. Can you be riveted by a sitcom? I think so. I, th- I, think. I was riveted yeah. by All in the Family. Yeah. I had no idea where Norman was taking that thing. And I was a kid. So what year is All in the Family? Uh, started in 72. So, so last year to 80. Old. Yeah. 12. And I'm, still, I'm sitting here talking to you about it in, in 2018. Yeah. And the fact that you still get to talk to Norman Lear about that. And, and oh, he I love, is... I love you <laughs> still... How about I just got to talk to him? <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, Norman Lear, who I believe is ninety six now, is right. is he is yeah he he is when you talk to him he is still on top of it he is at the top of his game he's producing he is uh, you know someone who is just still whip whip smart a political juggernaut yeah. It's it's you know we all could only dream of being that active and, and that sharp when we get to that age. Yeah, the the other guy who does that, uh, the guy who produces Stand Against Evil with me, Dana Gould, um, works for Mel Brooks. Another one who and they work every day. Yeah. On I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you what they're writing. But yeah, they're, I was about to say what's what's Dana? <laughs> they're they're writing something, and they if Dana's not doing uh, Stand. Which he does tirelessly. Uh, he's with Mel Brooks over yeah. at uh, MGM. Wow! In that big white Tara-looking building. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. There, there's that whole generation of Rob of, Reiner. Yeah, I mean, Carl Reiner. Uh, I'm sorry, Carl yeah, Reiner. yeah, Carl Reiner. Not to be confused with Meathead. Um, but uh, they're, they're, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Uh, Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, who are we had Dick Van Dyke on Scrubs? He was miraculous. Still, still, yeah. There, there was something in the comedy waters because that whole group worked. That whole group worked together. Yeah, on the show Mary Tyler Moore did the one before it was Mary Tyler Moore. The Dick Van Dyke show. They all worked on that. Yeah, well, they all like your show of shows. They all worked with Sid Caesar, who was you know really whip smart until the end of his life. So there, there was something about working in comedy at that time. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the podcast, we talk to Stand Against Evil star John C. McGinley about his series, acting, Hollywood, and his wide-ranging career, which includes everything from platoon and office space to scrubs. And we talk about his favorite episode of TV of all time, All in the Family's Season 2 episode, The Elevator Story. It's my favorite episode. My favorite episode's about to start All in the Family was still a relatively new show just in its second season when the episode The Elevator Story aired on New Year's Day 1972. It was the first episode to take place entirely outside the bunker house, as Archie takes Edith, Gloria, and Mike out to dinner to celebrate Edith's birthday. But when he realizes that he forgot to mail an overdue bill, Archie races over to pay it, and gets stuck in an elevator with an African-American businessman, a Puerto Rican man with a wife about to go into labor, and a secretary. And Archie's in the middle of it all. For John C. McGinley, it was quite a memorable episode, and one that he even got to discuss with creator Norman Lear, a longtime idol of his. Currently, McGinley can be seen on IFC's Stand Against Evil, now in its third season, and McGinley said he was inspired by Archie Bunker in coming up with the motivation behind playing Stan. So when we asked the actor to select his favorite episode of TV of all time, it really was a no-brainer. So I chose uh, All in the Family, the scene, the the episode from the second season where Archie 
is trapped in an elevator with um, a, a rainbow of minorities, um, a black couple, a, a Puerto Rican couple, uh, and the Puerto Rican young woman is pregnant. And in fact, she will birth a child in the elevator in this episode. Right. And the only backstory on it that really salts the peanut in a more lovely way for me is that I got to meet one of the only people I hero worship, which is Norman Lear. Yeah. Uh, I got to meet him through my friend Paul Hip. They have a podcast. And I met Norman. Uh, and I started, I immediately started blurting out that uh, we've crafted a TV series that we're in the third season of uh, called Stand Against Evil. And the protagonist, we borrowed liberally from Carol O'Connor and Norman uh, rendition of this patriarch, this mm -hmm. kind of overbearing patriarch. And that lit his ears up. I meant it as a compliment. Um, and I, that's, that was to have terminated the conversation. Just I wanted to pay you, Norman, all respect and tell you that you are, uh, you are creatively and um, spiritually and emotionally helping me to really authentically create this, this guy from the archetype that, that you impacted with, in me with so profoundly yeah. when I was growing up. And now he's suing you for copyright infringement. But no, <laughs> what happened was that opened up the pathway to yeah. sharing stories. And so Norman, and I'd already read his book, this, so this was when the book came out, two years ago. Yeah. Uh, I'd already read the book, and he proceeded to uh, tell me. In the book, he explores the elevator scene in pretty great detail, but in person, it's even better. Yeah. And so uh, why did I spark to it? I sparked to it because... Uh, I guess knowing the backstory, Carol didn't want to do the episode. In fact, he didn't show up for work. Yeah, yeah. And lawyers got involved. He 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 was going to walk away because he didn't like the ending, right? Or, Correct. Or what was what was the backstory there? The backstory was he didn't like he didn't want Archie in that circumstance. How so? How come? We'll never know. Yeah. But he he either left the state, or he left the. Uh, the stage and the where where they shoot it? They shoot it over at Universal. They shoot uh, it someplace I else. I think they shot at uh, Metro Media, which oh, is now a okay. high school. But so uh, th they shot it all the way in town. Um, we're we're here in Santa Monica or on the edge of Santa Monica, and so they were all the way in town. Carol leaves. Um, the alarms start to go off. Uh, he's pulled back in, and begrudgingly he does the episode, and he's magnificent in it yeah. because he's largely a silent film star in the episode, he reacts more than Archie, Carol O'Connor made Archie and Norman made him a, a classic initiator. He initiates everything. So yeah. in acting, you can do one of two things. You can initiate and you can react. And if, there's, if those are in balance, then you have a chance for something to percolate. If there's too many reactors, then it dies. If there's too many initiators, it's the stuff we hate to see when um, um, actors are like um, um, baby chicks in the nest. Trying, everyone's trying to get the worm. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. A perfect example of that is in Office Space. Um, the two downsizers are me and this other actor from uh, Chicago, and he was classic reactor. So I got to initiate all the interviews in Office Space, and then he he was in a reactionary capacity. Yeah. And it gets to be music in improv. Yeah. It gets to be music. Anyway, I digress. So um, wh why it impacted me was a, a guy who is functions so surgically in the format of All in the Family as an initiator with, with Gene Stapleton always being a reactor and the meathead always being a reactor and Gloria always being a reactor, yeah. all off of Archie um, just spitting out initiations and in this he can't he's trapped yeah and so he becomes this observer and all of a sudden you see what a sublime layered actor carol o'connor is i didn't know carol o'connor but he clearly impacted me pretty profoundly growing up yeah uh and by the end of it uh he's handed the baby and he just starts to weep i just got chill um <laughs> and i it it yeah. caught me off guard. It caught me, it me off guard right now thinking about it. And whatever, it's funny, 
taking some poetic license and speculating, maybe Carol didn't want to go there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, maybe that's a really slippery place. Yeah, that that quicksand of vulnerability where actors, when they go there, sometimes we we go quick, and maybe that's not where Carol. I'm totally speculating. Well, you know, it was only season two, so this was still pretty early in in the process. So that may be part of it too, as as he was still sort of exploring the 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 sort of the, the length of who Archie Bunker is maybe and how far emotionally do you go with him. Um, you know, the, the thing that I love, because uh, I went back and, and uh, rewatched it, is the, the sort of the sparring, speaking of the yin and yang, between him and Hector Elizondo, who plays the... Not a, Porter, not a bad, not not a, a bad a, guest star. Right, right. And, and you know, so he plays the, uh, the Puerto Rican, uh, who's the janitor in the building, and that's why they're stuck in the elevator, because the, the janitor is the one who would generally help them out, but he's in the elevator with his pregnant wife. And there's that sparring, and then there's a African-American gentleman who's also in the elevator, but who actually harbors some racist thoughts towards uh, Hector Elizondo's character. So sure. there's there's so much going on. And then, uh, 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 who is it? Uh, Elaine, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, looking it up right now. Uh, Elaine Brennan plays the sort of ditzy uh, secretary who's also in the elevator. <laughs> How about that for it's, an ensemble? It's a pretty great, I mean, that, that should have been a spinoff right and there. That's just, your, and that's your B team. Yeah, yeah. Like they, they should have just spun off the elevator group uh, since since Norman Lear was known you to do that. Do worse, yeah. But um, um, I don't know if you had a chance to talk to to Norman about this, but I've always been intrigued by his. He has a complicated feeling about ultimately how people took Archie Bunker. That uh, you know, obviously he was he was trying to make a statement about bigotry and. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, put up Ar- Archie Bunker as a sign of this. This is this is ugly. This is what you should not be cheering. This is the old way. But people ended up loving Archie Bunker, and there are a lot of viewers who watched All in the Family and said, "Yeah, Archie Bunker's right," and that wasn't really Norman's intention. And I know he was he had sort of a complicated. Uh, uh, sort of relationship with that character as a result. I, I have given no small amount of thought to that, selfishly, as it applies to yeah. the construct that, that we've... Dana Gould, who's the executive producer of Stand Against Evil, which is our show on IFC, uh, which premieres third season on Halloween. <laughs> um, and when we were constructing who and what Stan Miller is, you can stumble into the the Archie Bunker archetype, but it gets slippery quick. And the reason it gets slippery is that they're equal opportunity offenders. And in 2018, we'll just change the channel. And so what floated Archie, what, what allowed us to, those of us who didn't love him politically, but loved him emotionally and satirically, uh, it's Edith. And so... Uh, it's Gene Stapleton who's so magnificent. Yeah. And so I asked Norman about this. I said, uh, w- and and we we borrowed from that for Stan. Uh, for Stan, it's his dead wife, and that redeems him. And I asked I asked Norman about this at a uh, at a dinner party we were at once, and he told me this really interesting story. He said one time, you might know the episode. One time, they had a trans um, a transgender storyline going. And the character uh, gets killed. And Edith starts to circle the drain because her, her Christianity is a huge part of Edith's whole arc. Mm-hmm. And she starts to question her relationship with God. And so Norman wrote this, and then he couldn't figure out how to get her out of it, he told me. And so he went over to UCLA, and he talked to a psychiatrist over there, he went to um, he went to temple and he talked to some rabbis. He talked to doctors. He talked to he told me he talked to everybody to figure out how he can get her out of this. And after all the dust had settled and he'd assimilated all the input, he realized it was because uh, if she if she goes away emotionally and 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 spiritually, Archie's dead. Yeah. She floats Archie. Archie can't take care of himself. 
uh, in we saw it in Archie's place. It's uh, it wasn't the largely same. less interesting. Right, right. Um, there was some great stuff in Archie's place, but those two together, Edith floating him. If she loves him, then there must be something there for us to love. Yeah. If Jean Stapleton, in her magnificence, can can float that love and care for Archie. There's something there. Yeah, yeah. And secondarily, Gloria and, and Meathead, uh, you know, there's... You know, Very secondarily. Yeah, yeah. I think it the, the tipping point, uh, we live and die with Edith. Yeah. And I can't believe we're talking about this 30 years later, but how... I don't know if you could pay an artist a bigger compliment. Yeah. Well, when you, you mentioned that, you know, doing a transgender episode in the 70s... Yeah, that's still kind of revolutionary in 2018. We're we're just starting to see shows tackle that. So good. So, so good. So man, when when we don't really have a writers' room on Stan, uh, but we did uh, when we were doing uh, Scrubs over towards uh, Valley Village, and there was we worked at a, a defunct hospital, and the different hospital could accommodate different groups. In other words, the actors were up on three, and we shot on four, two, and one. And over in the psychiatric unit uh, was where the writers were housed, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. And they were in two separate rooms, and there would be seven writers in each room, and they would leapfrog each episode, and Bill Lawrence, who was the ex- executive producer, would, would ride shotgun over wh- whatever was needed. Uh, but when you went into that writer's room, and I'm, I don't know what this is born out of. I remember there was a lawsuit on it from friends, but you better have emotional Kevlar on because mm-hmm. they were savage. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea if it's still the same way. Uh, but Dana Gould ran the writer's room on The Simpsons right. for almost 10 years. I yeah. can't even imagine what that... Yes, I can. I can imagine what that writer's room is like. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. There was that friend's lawsuit and... What was the friend's lawsuit? Did There was a young woman who... Uh, yeah, that stuff wouldn't float in 2018, Prob- although I prob- think it still does. To some degree, yeah. I, I think it depends on the room, depends on the show as well. Um, well, let me let me ask you about something that's been interesting that, that sort of is, you know, what you did both on Scrubs and now with, with Stand Against Evil is you, you do play this kind of Archie Bunker-ish character who is surrounded by absurd situations. And obviously with Stan, it's it's it's, you know, total sci-fi horror absurdity scrubs was much more just comedic absurdity it was almost like uh you know simpsons it had like the the, yeah, the cutaways I, I and, and things like that i disagree fundamentally in that both are grounded scrubs the reason scrubs worked is it's grounded in emotional in an emotional reality yeah and so the people's favorite episodes of scrubs are, are when the wheels are coming off for cox yeah when he loses the three patients to rabies when brendan fraser comes on and dies those are across the board. Yeah, yeah. Ones. And so that's what I was going to ask you about. Like, you know, the, these absurd situations, what was sort of the, 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 the draw for you? And it sounds like it was sort of the, still the groundedness of it and the emotional groundedness of these stories. Even as there's cartoon elements happening, there's still these grounded stories also happening and the balancing all that. Well, it's interesting. When, when Dana uh, Gould, the creator of uh, Stand Against Evil, came out to my house and they brought all eight, eight episodes and I had read them and I thought they were great and really subversive and weird uh, but I, I, I told them I said this this the catalyst for that this idea that I'm about to share with you is born out of your scripts so you're the one who did this and he, I think I think he, he was scared and I said you're, you're missing how damaged this guy is this guy's wounded and I can only play him when men are wounded, they become more interesting. Yeah. And they're damaged. Like Billy Lawrence, Dr. Cox was the, the penultimate damaged alpha male. Right. That's why he was interesting. Yeah. Because he was, he, he, there were a lot of missing parts for that guy. Yeah, yeah. And for Stan, we see in the, I, I told Dana, I said, you've written a guy who in the first three minutes that we meet him in the, in the premiere episode, the pilot episode, he loses his wife of 27 years and his job of 26 He's been fired from his job, and he has nothing. He has a daughter who he loves, but she's, you know, the Jonathan Winters of her generation. And uh, why, why are we just glossing over the, how, how wounded this guy is? Yeah. And I said, what's interesting, and what writers can write are damaged characters. 
uh, and I said, you got to promise me if I do this, we can, we can excavate and, and dust off and make this guy responsible for what he's going to do about these wounds, mostly emotional and, and spiritual, or is he not going to do anything? And that's interesting. Is he going to so overcompensate and, and not acknowledge what's missing? That's interesting. I said, but you, right now, uh, we're, we're just taking the, the express train past all these delicious stops we should be making on the local of, of and the, the train line would be the, uh, the eccentricity train line would be um, damages you, you have to be, uh, you have to reconcile. And he did it. And so then I can do, I can, I can turn a joke and I can, and Dana can write them. And I said, but what's going to be really interesting about this guy and what's inter- what was interesting about Cox um, was that they're hurt. Yeah. And when men are hurt, they're interesting. And, and, uh, and I think that's also why people still gravitate towards Cox on, on Scrubs. And, you know, when you go back to the Archie Bunker Edith comparison, obviously Zach Braff's character and his love for Dr. Cox and his need for Cox's love and approval and all that sort of gave us an in to also. I buy that. Really appreciate That's Cox. Really interesting. I never thought about Archie Bunker specifically with Dr. Cox. Uh, he just never came on my radar. Yeah. It was it was immediately clear to me with Stan. Um, it, just because Cox is such a cog in the machine at that hospital, mm-hmm. and Stan's. You know he's our guy, uh, yeah. And I, I think, to me, there—I I understand when you when you put it that way. There are some similarities, uh, and what I always tell young actors when I'm working with them is that you're you're not any of these people. Um, you're uh, Bob, and if you can, I always ask them, how are we going to reduce the, pro- the profundity of the lie that you're going to exercise in front of the lens? How can we do that, Oliver Stone? help this by putting us through this three-week boot camp in platoon now we didn't become soldiers but it allowed people's hopefully get actors are, are gifted and cursed with these imaginations that help them take a leap if you get them if you get them a little closer to to whatever the truth is they, they can take a leap and we were able to in platoon and with with dr cox i just yeah you, you got to move them a little closer because actors what we're doing in front of the lens. I heard, I heard Malkovich say this once. It's just, the whole thing's a big fat lie. And when it gets good is when the lie, like Bob uh, De Niro became a boxer for all of us in Raging Bull. He's not a boxer, but we bought it. Yeah. He, he reduced the width of the lie. And that's all you're trying to do. Yeah. And whether it's grounding it in something, uh, you know, Robin Williams the, the, and Jim Carrey, those... Those guys can do it with sheer will and and agility. We're not them. Nobody else. You know who's Robin Williams? Robin. You know who's Jim? Jim. They're the only ones who can do it. Jonathan Winters could do it. The rest of us have to. You have to find something, because that lens is like an X-ray machine. And if you try to BS that lens, it'll just the the X-ray will come out negative, and you'll be exposed for being not good at storytelling because we're not buying it for some reason. We don't even know why. Just the lens doesn't suffer your lie unless you reduce the profundity of it. If you can just reduce it. I don't even know what percentage or what the, what the quantum math of it is all, of it, it is for everybody, but there's just ways. So when, when actors play doctors, they're not doctors, but if you hang out with a doctor and like I did for, you know, my son was born in, uh, down in Santa Monica and I was in the hospital for a long time because of our challenges. And you start to get some of that on you. And hopefully actors can, can access those, those memories and experiences and wear them. And then the lens can be tricked just a little bit. And then that's, I, I'm pretty sure that's what good acting is. Well, it sounds like Dana took took uh, your suggestion to heart. He sure did. That it, it really became sort of a driving force for the series uh, going forward, and uh, Stan's sort of you know wish of somehow being reunited with his wife, finding a way to, but the challenges that came with that, and now he's dealing with the aftermath. In, right, in it's season. great. It's great that he's not good at it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so talk. But he's willing to reconcile the these this loss. He's willing to, to to if you're you know he's willing to roll it, but he's not good. He's not equipped for any of this. He probably never pulled his gun in the 27 years of working in this town, this uh, mythical town of Willard's Mill. He never pulled his weapon, ever. And now there's 172 witches trying to kill him, and all he wants to do is get on his recliner and watch the History Channel. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's great when people are under under equipped to do something that they have to do. Not that they're not choosing to do it. They just have to do it. And what makes Stan a really delicious anti-hero is that he will fight these witches and he will do the right thing, but only in the bottom of the ninth with the bases jacked. And the motivating factor is he doesn't want to hear about it if he doesn't. Right. That's just great. <laughs> and that's our hero. That's who we're pinning our hopes on. Call action and get out of my eye line. That's delicious. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, things that as we head into I mean, he doesn't want the championship belt. He doesn't want to put the world on his shoulder. He just doesn't want to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. That's why he keeps slamming the door on whoever shows up at his Absolutely. house. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's not an act. Yeah, that's his truth. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Uh, I enjoyed, uh, by the way, uh, the the episode two of season three, the X Files parody. Um, um, having some fun with, while while the world is uh, crumbling, and uh, as as Stan is trying to, you know, figure figure out, uh, you know, how to save the world, and and uh, it's 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 an interesting uh, dichotomy in in that Stan doesn't want to face it, he doesn't want to deal with all this stuff, but yet he's sitting down, he's he's reading these texts, these ancient texts, and he's he's trying to figure things out on his own terms. Well, I think the way Dana has it structured now is the new normal is eight episodes, and so. Of the eight episodes in each season, four are uh, witch or bad guy of the week, and four are mythology uh, that, mm-hmm. that move the mythology of the show forward. And uh, so Dana this year decided to uh, have a heavy, heavy dose of horror uh, Hall of Famers and and scary Hall of Famers, of which he knows backwards. And... So, yeah, Kolshak shows up in there. <laughs> yes, um, love, love, love. For people who know who <laughs> yeah. Darren McGavin was. Love, love the Kolshak reference. Uh, yeah. the, there's a uh, Mothra episode where uh, David David uh, turns into a, a, a Godzilla. For people who know Godzilla, at one point he, he fights him off. Um, I didn't. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple of these throughout the season. Oh, we have puppets. Uh, that are bad guys in one they're possessed by witches uh, and I, that's like a fever dream um, it's insane and you know we show this stuff down at these comic cons and people go nuts yeah because there's a there's a certain bandwidth it's not for everybody and if you don't know what this stuff is it doesn't matter it's wildly entertaining but there's people who know all this stuff we just got back from New York Comic Con, and we showed the the Godzilla Mothra one. People were going bananas. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yep. And that's all Dana. He knows yeah. all this stuff. How, how do you shoot it? Is it? Uh... Uh, <laughs> we do something which is um, again the new normal, called cross blocking. Yeah, that's so I'm hearing words, a lot about that now. So in other words, when you and I are in this uh, podcast room for episodes one, five, and eight. We're shooting out this interior all this morning. We're going to shoot your. St- we're going to shoot the master of you and I st- sitting here talking um, in one, five, and eight. Then we're going to we're going to shoot. We're going to change your wardrobe for five and eight. Mine. And then we're going to shoot your coverage, your singles. We're never coming back to this location, this podcast location. We're going to shoot. The whole crew is downstairs. 150 people, light and cable into this room, but we're never coming back here. And so it's called cross blocking, and I love it because. I love putting blinders on like a Kentucky Derby thoroughbred and just, this is what we're doing for these five weeks. It's five weeks to shoot eight episodes, which is preposterous. Right, right. Um, so each episode is about three and a quarter days, um, which is absurd. Which is absurd. That, that's Because how, how many days did you shoot a Scrubs episode? It was like... Five and a half, six. Yeah. And those were 16-hour days Yeah, uh, over towards Valley Village. When we're in Atlanta, uh, we don't have... We're, those are 12-hour days. We don't have the money to pay the grips and electric and everybody OT and the actors. It's 12 hours. There's no overtime. Um, 
So the, the only trade-off here, so it doesn't turn into a gripe fest. First of all, it's not a gripe fest because I love shooting this way. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do on a film set now um, where, it's, where it's hurry up and wait for six hours while you know, the Hungarian uh, DP changes the lighting. And that's an homage to Vilmos Zygmunt, <laughs> who was with us on Fat Man and Little Boy. Um, but he was slow. Yeah, uh, and you only get like one, one scene <clears throat> in a day. Um, I forgot what I was saying. Uh, I forgot what I was saying. You were just saying it's going to be hard to go back to a, a movie set now that you're like in this like fast-paced. Yeah. We go. I mean, is it like one take or? No, the takes are never. That's the big misnomer. Yeah. The takes aren't what take time. What take time is lighting you and then coming around and lighting me and then moving back and getting the master and lights and cables. And now your key light went out. And so now it's a half hour to fix that right. key light. And are we going to now just move you over here and make it a two-shot um, so that we're both st sitting next to each other and not, not look? We have to do something. Uh, but it's, uh, it's thrilling. And the trade-off, I know what I was moving towards, the trade-off for this cross-blocking is Dana and I are afforded an enormous amount of creative autonomy. And the reason that's important is that both of us are obsessed with shepherding the tone of the piece. And what I mean is, with it as horror comedy, that spectrum that, that where it lives in is the two extremes would be um, the exorcist, which is scary as hell, but you can't, you're not really going to break a joke. You might, but not really. Uh, and the other is Scooby-Doo, where it's funny, but the monsters are largely not a threat. Right. And so the, the all-timers that live in the middle there are uh, Bruce Campbell's show um, and um, An American Werewolf in London. Yeah. What Landis did with right. that, is, that's, that's kind of the, that's the high point, how he mixed. You know, when Griffin and those guys are, and Naughton are, are looking at that wolf, and you remember uh, what Stan Winston won Academy Award, when his thing is growing, that's not green screen. They invented that. It's scary as all get out. That wolf is scary. Yeah. And the, but then you get Griffin, who's a ghost, dropping jo jokes everywhere. Yeah. You know, with that face. That you, and the whole time, Griffin Dunn. And he's just, it's hilarious. That's what yeah. Stan aspires to um, uh, mirror. Yeah, yeah. And I would and say. And it's hard, because if the jokes cannibalize, or the jokes can't cannibalize, if the monster cannibalizes the jokes, you're dead. And if the jokes are at the, you know, if you just keep throwing body shots at the monster, and you declaw the monster, you blew it. Yeah, because you got some gross and scary monsters on this show. It's... This year, one of the takeaways from last year was uh, the monster's got to be scarier. Yeah, yeah. And the... Was that a network note or was no, that just no, a... No, no, don't get... They largely leave us alone. Yeah. Because Dan is so locked in uh, that they don't want him... They're... It's just like Billy Lawrence on... Uh... I mean, they're both great at their jobs. They've done this before. And they just make the network's job easier. Yeah. And so, no, we are not micromanaged. And Billy wasn't micromanaged. Uh, and that's why the thing comes out so well. Yeah, yeah. But this was sort of just a feeling that you had in talking to fans or, or watching No, from Go, Dana yeah. and I were like, this is where this thing lives. Yeah. Uh, and it's easy to forget you live in the middle of those two. Yeah. Because uh, either one can subvert the other uh, quick, and then you blow it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting tightrope because you have the, there are scenes where it gets to be really gruesome and you forget for a second that uh, you know I was just laughing a second ago, uh, and and then vice versa the laughs come in and you're like oh this is coming down easy I'm not too scared and, and then Dana did this I don't know how much of season three you've seen but Dana did this unbelievably risky thing with the last two episodes which work as a as a paired set uh, three oh seven and three oh eight. Uh, that is going to leave everybody uh, who watches Stan uh, scratching their head. Yeah. Does that lead into season four or? Yeah, but he always, like, like at the end of season two, when I asked him, you know, he's just ended the world and now hell has descended on earth. Uh, well, I said, where are you going? He goes, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he picked up right from the, the, the final scene in season two. I thought the way he did the first season of season three with, was, with, it was with so much uh, grace and spine. And what I mean is, season two, as it wraps up, it's the end of the world, 
he could have just done a J.R. Ewing, I know I'm dating myself, with, with Bobby. Somebody's head could have bumped up against the shower. Somebody could have had a bad dream, and none of that could have happened. But instead, he owned it, and he made it so that the two protagonists, Janet Barney's character, Evie, and mine, the, 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 the direction of the first episode of season three is if they can chart a course through their own personal hell, they get to come back to here. Yeah. In a 21-minute and 35-second horror comedy, that's pretty esoteric, and he, and he nailed it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the best episodes we did. Because, first of all, descending out of the ashes of where the last episode of season two is, and then arriving at a springboard into season three, I just thought, Dan, I thought the writing was sublime. Um. Yeah, yeah, because you're right. weren't quite sure where he would go from there. And no, it could have been the old lazy writers' uh, convention of somebody bumped their head, uh, somebody had a bad dream, but he didn't go there. You mentioned that Dana obviously was a horror fan through the years. What about He's you? He's a horror fanatic. Yeah, where, where where did you stand on horror? I like more scary than I do the guy behind the door. Mm-hmm. Like the, the scariest thing for me, and I saw it too young, was wait until dark. When, when Richard Crenna and Alan Arkin are, are playing good cop, bad cop with a, um, a hearing-impaired Audrey Hepburn in the basement of a Greenwich Village flat. And I never saw the play. I just saw the film. And it was too scary. Alan Arkin was just, uh, I guess he was having the best time ever. He just was terrifying to me. So you're more into the psychological thrillers yes. than necessarily the, yes. the, 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 the gruesome stuff. I get too scared. Yeah. I get way too, Nicole, my wife, we, I get way too scared. Like when I saw Halloween, I was the first year of school I went was Ohio Wesleyan. I was in Delaware, Ohio. And that first Halloween came out. I guess that was the scariest thing I ever saw. Yeah, I find that I like my horror with a, a, a nice dose of comedy. Same here. And, and so, so. I do want to, I do want to, um, I want to surrender to you telling your story. If you let me. If you take me out of it because you suck, then I can't. But if, you, if you're going to execute your story and I'm going to watch this, I really want to surrender to the storyteller and I want to see everything you're doing and then you're going to scare the living S-H-I-T out of me and uh, it's, it's going to get on me for a while. Yeah. I'm going to look around the door a little bit and I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah, I mean, for me, because I was a kid in 1984 when Ghostbusters came out, that was the pinnacle. Because I was I the, the right age to be perfectly spooked by some of the ghosts on there, but it was hysterical at the same time. Uh, you know. I guess I should put Ghostbusters up there with. I never thought of that. Yeah, I, yeah, but it's ghost. It's it's is not enough scary stuff. It's in not there? as scary, and especially now as adults, it's it's not as scary as, as say even like uh, American Werewolf in London. But there's elements of some. Yeah, maybe I'll sprinkle sprinkle that in there. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, because that kind of lives in the in the wavelength I'm talking about. They, I think they wanted to put some scary stuff in there. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was, it was the the right amount. Um, so so you're uh, you're liking the the, the 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 series world in addition to the film world. Is this uh, you still like to go back and forth, or or yeah, do, I, do I, you I, find I, that the the line has blurred at this point that you, you, it doesn't really it matter? Yeah, I, uh, whether whether you're doing, I was lucky enough to do a revival of Glengarry on Broadway with Al Pacino and Bobby Cannavale a couple of years ago, and to me, and I do, I work with young actors, and, I, and they all want to know, but to me, there, there's no difference. Either the curtain's coming up, or someone's calling action, and you have to do something. You have to you have to you have to move some aggressive verb that serves the text forward you have to do something and it the rest of it is all noise uh it doesn't matter if you're at the schoenfeld eight nights a week doing glengarry or or in atlanta doing stan somebody calls action or the curtain goes up we're we have to do something uh we have to share stories we have to engage each other whatever the verb is it's it's distilled that clarity i've arrived at that clarity what uh, what do you get asked the most when when people uh, see you say at the airport or or in the street? It's demographically specific. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know how politically correct I don't know how to do it with political correctness. But different people ask me about different stuff. Yeah. Whether it's uh, scrubs or office space or uh, or now Stan or uh, or platoon or Wall Street or The Rock, 
that sounds arrogant as I'm saying it. I don't mean it to, but that's what that's what the stuff gets fired yeah. at. Me. Well, that's kind of cool that it's it's not it one thing cool. that it's you're that's not you're lost not on me. yeah you're not being repeated to to ask about a certain thing or talk about a certain thing. No. Uh, you know, it's so funny. Speaking of office space, I had, Ron Livingston was here yesterday. He's the best. And uh, we were talking about, you know, he's got so many things going on right now at the same time, too, um, including Louder Milk, which is a cable show that he shoots uh, just like uh, Stan. Uh, you know, oh, does he? Yeah, sort of the, the cross-boarding. Um, so, so we talked a lot about that. And he had sort of the same thing. A lot of people ask him still about office space. Uh, you know, some people well, he's ask. He's great in it. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's, it's, it, he kind of feels the same way. Very lucky to have done multiple things, not being pigeonholed by comedy or drama or horror or, or what have you. That, that's sort of the, the actor's dream, right? Is, is, I think if you want to do this for a living, um, then, and if you're lucky enough to get paid enough to do it for a living, then yeah, the, the, there's a premium on being nimble on, on being agile within a, a certain spectrum uh you know i'm i'm reminded of when we used to go in an audition uh at donna Deseta, right behind the post office on like 34th and and 9th uh, that was the commercial place where you'd go and audition in manhattan and there was always you know every commercial once a ken and barbie type and they'd have an african-american ken and barbie they'd have a, a white ken and barbie and then they'd have the altered ken and barbie and about a half a dozen times, it was me and Franny McDormand. Mm. And so uh, I, I never got the Ken and Barbie. I, but I got their dirty uncle. And <laughs> that's a better role. Yeah, yeah. It's a better role. But for a little while there, you really want to get the Ken and Barbie guy. And that ship sailed. And it's liberating. Yeah. And there's possibly more longevity to be the creepy uncle. Fact. <laughs> Although I haven't got to be the creepy uncle. i got to play him. So what are you excited about? What's next uh, on your docket that you can talk about? Uh, we have uh, this weekend, we have our, uh, our gala in Denver at the Global Down Syndrome Foundation um, where we have this fabulous night. It's called Be Beautiful, Be Yourself Fashion Show. And we bring in um, young people up and down the age spectrum who were all born with Down Syndrome and then we couple them with different celebrities. Jamie Foxx is on the board with me. And we bring in a bunch of celebrities this year, including Car uh, 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 Colin Farrell and uh, Jeremy Rayner. And the, the models walk the runway with different celebrities. And it's pretty much the highlight of our year. And we bring the whole family goes. And it's great. It's a fundraiser. Uh, and then on November 30th, I was invited to give the keynote address at the uh, uh, Special Olympics 50th anniversary uh, uh, dinner in Washington, D.C. And I get nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't written it yet. Yeah. Um, but that'll, that'll, be, uh, that'll be one for the books. Ask Dana to punch it up a little bit for you. I will send Dana a draft, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for us on Billy draft too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Why wouldn't you? You you have some some great com comedic minds uh, at your fingertips. Uh, they will. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah you, that'll ride out the year and 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 getting Stan. You know, in TV, the mandate is always get next year. Uh, unless you're one, at one point, NBC bought Scrubs for three years. That doesn't happen anymore. People's um, exposure, networks exposure. Uh, it's it's it, they trim their sales now. It's a it's a tighter business construct, and so the mandate is uh, get you know pr promote Stan and and get year four and do year four, and that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to ride Stan for a while. So we we are contractually obligated these days to ask every person the same question, which is reboots. If someone came to you and said we want to do another season of Scrubs, or we want to do a couple episodes of Scrubs, we want to bring back the band, and... I don't think it would look like a, a season. I think yeah. it would be something different. Primarily, because that ensemble has all... Billy populated that ensemble with working actors. Yeah. Uh, Neil, Neil has been on the middle for 10 years now, and now he has a new show. Uh, Zach is uh, a very successful director now. Donald has a new uh, Star Wars thing. Sarah's on Roseanne. Uh, Kenny, I don't know what Kenny's doing, but you'd, that would be, uh, I think everybody would do it. Yeah. 
but I don't think it looks like twenty. Yeah, I don't think not, it looks like twenty-two episodes. Yeah, maybe it's like five or something. These days, it seems like everyone has an opportunity to do so many different things at the same time. Now that I you know, have but these. I saw an art, I saw a piece uh, in one of the trades this morning where uh, audiences' appetites for reboots is going south. I saw that too, and I think there there is that element as well. So because it would also be. You know, we did almost 200 episodes of Scrubs, and so if if you didn't if you didn't wring that towel dry of everything you wanted to get out of those characters, yeah. it begs the question: What were you waiting for? Right. You even had that final Franken Scrub season. Uh, yes, that, uh, that was a great season. In the middle got, of uh, what do you call it? it? Was in the middle of the uh, the recession. Yeah. And Billy called the, kid, the show. We'd already shot the series final finale. Yeah. Series, not the season. Series, and. Uh, everyone was going off to do their things, uh, and Billy called, and another network picked it up. Uh, ABC picked it up, and Billy called, and this is the middle of the recession, and he said, uh, ABC wants to do 17 or 18 of them, and you'll get the money you got for season eight. Um, if you get a film, I'll write you a light, and you can go. Uh, we can be really flexible here. The recession, there were no jobs. Uh, it was the easiest decision in the history of the world. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't even... I mean, you'll get paid season eight money, which was an enormous amount of money, not in compared to friends and stuff like that. But for us, it, you were trading at your highs. Yeah. It wasn't... You, you can come back at season three, though. Uh, you got to bite the bullet creatively. It's like, no, no. So the only reason I say that is because were there some scrubs thing, uh, people are going to want to get their... They're going to want to get paid, and yeah. so uh, that'll be a that'll be a variable. Uh, since creatively, what are you looking to do? Uh, right, right. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah. I, I'd be very surprised if some variation of that doesn't realize fruition, and I don't know what it looks like. Right, uh, a two-hour movie for so and so. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be fun. Or a special episode of, uh, of another Bill Lawrence uh, series? Uh. <laughs> no, no, you couldn't pay the people enough. Yeah. Uh, well, I love Billy, so uh, if if Billy's doing it, then uh, people come to Billy because he's he and Dana are the Norman Lears of their generations. They're great at this. Yeah. Yeah. And what is this? Making really good television, which is impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, both of them trained under, I mean, Bill Lawrence under Gary David Goldberg. Oh, good memory, yes. And, uh, and, and of course, Dana just going through the, 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 the Simpsons. Uh, you know, how is that not like the perfect boot camp for writing comedy? So, uh, But, the, you know, there are guys who did both of those things who, who didn't rise the way Billy and Dana did. And so yeah. uh, what's great about Billy and Dana, one of the great things about them is on any set – they're the hardest working people. That's contagious. Yeah. That's, they're not looking to go take, do a two-hour lunch with their lawyer over in Beverly Hills. They're on the floor of the hospital. They're at, the, at Stan's house when it's 115 degrees in Georgia and the humidity is 90 and there's a lightning strike two, two miles away and the grips are threatening to shut us down. Uh, they're there. Reminds me of my, my, one of my heroes, Arnold Copelson, rest in peace, who just passed, who produced Platoon. Arnold was in the Philippines with us. He wasn't back here at whatever the fancy lunch place was, uh, the lunch du jour. Um, Arnold was in the Philippines with us. Yeah, boots on the ground. He was there. Yeah. And so was his wife, uh, Anne, was there. Oh, I'll start crying. And uh, that's different. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can tell with, with Dana, well, with the both of you, I mean, I can't imagine. Have you spoken with Danny yet? Uh, I've, I've talked to Dana before. He's the so best. He's a great guy. He's um, really smart, and he's really funny. So yeah. is Billy. Yeah. I love Billy. I've, I've <laughs> known him for years, too. Um, but, but I get the sense, you know, doing a show for IFC, you don't have the biggest budget in the world. <laughs> so <laughs> is that the understatement of the century? But um, you guys, so, so you got to be scrappy, right? you got to be a yes. little uh, you know, sort of, you know, smart and figure out a way to shoot this show and yes and and so that that's part yeah, of it if you that's... get over your skis um you're dead because we're not going to clean this up on a green screen we're not going to do reshoots not going to do pickups 
there's no such thing. The, the, you know, doing the green screen and all the computer stuff, that's expensive. Yeah. We have you in a rubber suit, uh, and you're the monster. And you've been in makeup for 13 hours, and we haven't gotten to you yet. And so, you gotta, yeah, Scrappy is a good, you got to figure it out. Yeah. Like big boys and big girls. And you got to play together. And all the actors have to rehearse, rehearse this like a play. Because as I was suggesting to you earlier, if we shoot 1, 5, and 8 this morning in this podcast room, and your aunt, in the context of the show, dies between 5 and 8, and she had a huge imprint on you, you're going to be different between 5 and 8. Well, we're shooting that all out here today. So you better have worked with your teacher and gotten all this, the whole arc of your season, hypothetically, has got to be squared away in your, in your actor brain. Yeah. Otherwise, we're dead. Yeah. We don't have time for you to go chant in the corner and light some incense and, 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 and fashion a ceremony that's going to allow the spirits, the acting spirits, to come to you and, you, and for you to ride. There's no time. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you thrive on that. I know I some do. people probably don't. It's probably a, 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 quite a learning process for, for others who have to adjust to that. Well, the, the, core, the, the core ensemble of Stan has gotten great at it. Yeah. Uh, Janet's unbelievable. Uh, I, I called her the Jonathan Winners of her generation. That's not by mistake. Uh, Deborah is astonishing. And then Nate has had to do a lot of who, what, where, when, how for two seasons, which is pretty thankless. And Dana put all he could eat on his plate this year. And, and Nate just shines. and He just steals season three. It's great. Well, John, uh, congrats on season three. Thank you. And uh, looking forward to uh, seeing, seeing the rest of it uh, into I season four. I can't wait for you to see it. So, yeah, no, it sounds like some surprises for those final two episodes. So be looking forward to that. Uh, but good luck with everything. Good luck with uh, your, your event this weekend and also yeah, your, you. your speech. So uh, <laughs> John, not, to, not to put the pressure on you there. But, oh, it's uh, on. So, 22 minutes. So uh, fill 22 minutes. All right, well, hopefully someone will be recording it and we'll watch it on YouTube uh, when, when all is said and done. It won't disappoint, I guarantee you. <laughs> well, great. Well, thanks, man. Great talking to you. Cheers. That's it for this edition of My Favorite Episode. Join us again next time as we once again explore another guest pick. And be sure to subscribe to My Favorite Episode on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com for your daily fix of TV news, analysis, and reviews. I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you again next time. for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.